Over-the-counter substances are cheap and widely available compared to other substances of abuse. Some teens view them as safe or non-addictive because they are legally and readily available. In 2020, the National Institute on Drug Abuse reported that 3.2 to 4.6% of high schoolers nationwide endorsed abusing over-the-counter cough and cold medicines in 2019, the year before. In this podcast, Mara and I will discuss some commonly abused substances that are legally available for purchase. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is another special episode from the Child Psychiatry Team. I'm Dr. Josh Fader, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report and co-author of the Child Medication Factbook for Psychiatric Practice and the newer prescribing psychotropics. But of course, we have our newest version of the Child Medication Factbook for Psychiatric Practice coming out probably around the same time as this podcast. So look for that too. And I'm Mara Government a licensed clinical social worker in Southern California with a private practice. Let's begin by discussing Kratom, an herbal extract from Mitragyna speciosia, which acts on opioid receptors. Kratom is available as a tea that can be brewed in hot water, in capsules, or in powders, and is usually found in vape shops or on the internet. Kratom sales exceeded 1.13 billion in 2016, and the majority of toxic exposures to Kratom from 2011 to 2017 were in adolescence. But why is Kratom popular, and what makes this extract dangerous? Adolescents seek out Kratom because it has stimulant effects at low doses and euphoric effects at higher doses. Since it acts on opiate receptors, some people think it can be used to help with opioid withdrawal as well. This is a mistake since it is unreliable and unregulated, and it should be no surprise that regular use of Kratom can lead to dependence with a withdrawal syndrome similar to opioid withdrawal, including anxiety, gastrointestinal symptoms, headache, running nose, watery eyes, and sweating. At toxic levels, Kratom may cause tachycardia, hypertension, altered mental status, abdominal pain, and seizures. Clinicians can treat symptoms of withdrawal with medications such as clonidine and naltrexone. So far, what I'm getting is that Kratom is not only easily accessible for children and adolescents, but it can have some very severe consequences. So why isn't Kratom being regulated? Kratom is illegal in several states, including Alabama, Arkansas, and Indiana, as well as some cities such as our own hometown of San Diego and Sarasota, Florida. But most states do not regulate Kratom sales. Advocacy groups and some policymakers argue that Kratom may be beneficial for managing pain and reducing opiate addiction, and those actions have hindered efforts to regulate Kratom. Talking about Kratom makes me think about dextromethorphan, the active ingredient in hundreds of over-the-counter cough and cold products, including Coracetin, HBP, Robitussin, DM, and Delsum. Similar to Kratom, adolescents abuse this drug for its euphoric and stimulant effects. However, unlike Kratom, 
dextromethorphan contains dissociative effects, which adds to its desirable properties. Yes, dextromethorphan, the medication that is now combined with bupropion to make a newly approved, purportedly fast-acting antidepressant. Dr. Fader, at what dose does dextromethorphan induce stimulant-like and dissociative effects? Before I answer that, it's kind of important to know that cytochrome CYP2D6 metabolizes dextromethorphan with a half-life of two to four hours, and its psychoactive properties are based on dosing. So in most adults, it works as a cough suppressant in doses from 15 to 30 milligrams, and that's what you'll see on the packaging. But dextromethorphan has a stimuli effect at 100 to 200 milligrams, and doses of 200 or above produce intoxication with slurred speech, hallucinations, and impaired memory. What are the dangers of dextromethorphan? Well, depending on the dose, dextromethorphan toxicity can cause a variety of symptoms from milder nuisances like flushed skin and tachycardia to severe symptoms such as hallucinations, ataxic gait, and agitation. Chronic use of dextromethorphan is associated with psychosis and cognitive impairment. What are the common withdrawal symptoms of dextromethorphan, and are they life-threatening? That's a really good question. A, A chronic user who stops using dextromethorphan is likely to have a lot of discomfort. However, the withdrawal is not life-threatening. Withdrawal symptoms include restlessness, insomnia, muscle aches, dysphoria, and intense cravings. The other thing to remember is that dextromethorphan will increase serotonin levels. So if you have a patient on a medication that affects serotonin levels, you will want to ask specifically about dextromethorphan abuse to minimize the risk of serotonin syndrome. And even for people who you know want to use dextromethorphan clinically, you want to be watching for serotonergic-type side effects. But there is some good news. The efforts to curb adolescent abuse of dextromethorphan in the United States began in 2021. Now, 21 state governments have prohibited the sales of dextromethorphan to those under 18 years old. shift gears and talk about antihistamines, another commonly abused substance that is legally available for purchase. First-generation antihistamines are usually used to treat allergy symptoms or motion sickness. Commonly abused agents which cross the blood-brain barrier include diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, doxalamine, which is found in NyQuil, and diminhydronate, which is Dramamine. Adolescents who abuse antihistamines seek out its sedating and ansiolytic effects at low doses or stimulant-like effects at higher doses. Antihistamine toxicity can include delirium, hallucinations, seizures, and psychosis with tachycardia, dry mouth, blurry vision, constipation, and urinary retention. Antihistamines also cause QTC prolongation, increasing the risk of dangerous arrhythmias. In addition, chronic abuse can lead to withdrawal cravings accompanied by runny nose, nausea, diarrhea, 
cramping, irritability, restlessness, and insomnia. So there are some easy ways to remember antihistamine toxicity and withdrawal since they're a lot like anticholinergic ones. For toxicity, you might've heard the old rhyme, red as a beet, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter, and hot as a fox. And for withdrawal, you might remember slud, salivation, lacrimation, that's tears and runny nose, urination, and diarrhea, slud. The more recent thing that comes to mind when I think about antihistamines is the 2020 Benadryl Challenge, which dared people to ingest large amounts of diphenhydramine and post their responses on the TikTok social media platform. This coincided with increased diphenhydramine-related emergency room visits in adolescents, including at least one death. In September 2020, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a warning that advised the public and healthcare providers about this problem. However, unfortunately, there are no laws currently to limit access to antihistamines. Pseudoephedrine is used as a nasal decongestant and packaged with other drugs such as antihistamines, dextromethorphan, acetaminophen, or NSAIDs. Over-the-counter medications that contain pseudoephedrine include brands such as Sudafed, Comtrex, Dristin, and Entex. Pseudoephedrine is available in dose ranges from 15 to 60 milligrams for immediate release and 120 to 240 milligrams for extended release. Dr. Fader, what makes pseudoephedrine so appealing to adolescents? Well, teens abuse pseudoephedrine for its stimulant properties. Like amphetamine, it boosts athletic and academic performance while suppressing appetite and sleep. However, like all the substances we discussed today, its toxic effects can be severe. These effects include hypertension, tachycardia, dizziness, and even seizures and psychotic symptoms. If a patient who is on stimulant medications and then takes pseudoephedrine, whether for a cold or for their performance effects, this can multiply those side effects. Withdrawal symptoms are also similar to stimulant withdrawal and can include dysphoria, restlessness, and abnormal perception. There is some regulation over distribution of pseudoephedrine. Currently, federal law limits the daily retail sales of pseudoephedrine to 3.5 grams and the monthly retail sales to 9 grams per person. Iowa, Mississippi, and Oregon also have age restrictions for purchasing pseudoephedrine. Should providers be aware of any other medications that may interact with pseudoephedrine? Oh yeah, thanks for asking that, Mara. Pseudoephedrine interacts with monoamine oxidase inhibitors mm -hmm. such as selegiline and can induce a hypertensive crisis. Make sure to counsel all your patients on MAOIs about the risks of hypertensive crisis and its specific potential interaction with pseudoephedrine. The last one for today is Tianeptine. Tianeptine is a tricyclic antidepressant that binds to opioid receptors. It is prescribed outside of the U.S., but available over-the-counter in the U.S. It produces euphoria and is energizing, but has rapid withdrawal symptoms similar to opiates. Tianeptine is banned in Alabama, Georgia, 
Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, and Tennessee. So we added TNF team as a latecomer when we were finishing this article because we were hearing so much news about it. And we wanted to be sure you were hearing about that one. We want to go over a number of key points that clinicians should be aware of when discussing substance use with patients and families. First of all, make sure to review slang terms for substances, but don't count on precision. For example, some kids call pseudoephedrine meth, and these days, perhaps even more important, is the fact that any street drug might include mm -hmm. a deadly dose of fentanyl. You can refer to the table in the transcript to learn more about common slang terms for legal substances. Also, try to interview parents and adolescent patients separately. Ask patients about their use of legally available substances and ask patients and families about substance use in peers and their ability to access substances both at home and in mm. the community. Ask parents about unusual medicinal smells or empty medicine containers in the patient's room. Counsel families on safe storage techniques and monitoring substances in the home. For example, remind parents to keep medications in a locked storage area away from children and to regularly inventory all medications and safely dispose of medications that are expired or not being used. Many pharmacies and police stations have medication disposal receptacles. Do not throw them away into the trash, the toilet, or down the drain as these impact community soil, water systems, and wildlife. So that covers some assessment and prevention, but you're probably wondering at this point, what about treatment? Unfortunately, there's not much data on how to treat people who misuse legal substances. So we recommend approaches similar to other substance use disorders like motivational interviewing to engage the patient in the process of reducing and stopping and cognitive behavioral therapy to carefully pick apart, understand and shift the thoughts, feelings and behaviors to support healthier choices and happier days free of both the escape into substance use and the withdrawal that reboots the vicious cycle. is that we need to regularly ask patients about the use of legal substances such as dextromethorphan, antihistamines, pseudoephedrine, kratom, and tianeptine. And we need to help them weigh the risks against the perceived benefits, reminding them that intoxication with any of these can lead to dangerous side effects requiring acute management or hospitalization. The newsletter clinical update is available for subscribers to read in the Carlisle Child Psychiatry Report. Hopefully people will check it out. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credit. And everything from Carlisle Publishing is independently researched and produced. There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Yes, the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust. And don't forget, you can now earn CME credits for listening to our podcast. Just click the link in the description to access 
the CME post-test for this episode. And as always, thanks for listening and have a great day.